Well, it was around 11.40 p.m. Uh, when the ship entered the dark, icy waters of Prince William Sound. By all accounts, it seemed like it was going to be a, a fairly typical uh, voyage. The captain and the third mate uh, at the start of the voyage conferred um, in the helm and charted their course for the upcoming uh, sailing to their port of destination. As they thought about what course they should take, they'd had reports that there were several small icebergs in the area. And so in an attempt to avoid these icebergs, they departed uh, the standard commercial shipping lanes. They actually charted a course across those shipping lanes toward a well-known reef in Prince William Sound. Their plan, though, was that several miles before the reef, they would take a sharp turn, and in charting this course, they would avoid both the icebergs and they would avoid... uh, running aground on this reef. After conferring with a third mate, the captain, who later it was widely reported had been drinking most of the day, uh, went below to take a nap to sleep off the alcohol he consumed, and the third mate took over the helm. Inexplicably, it was later discovered that he put the ship on autopilot, which most experienced captains said made no sense in the restricted waters that they were in. Not too long after that, one of the deckhands noticed a flashing red light. It was a buoy indicating that they were much closer to the reef than they should have been. She ran in and told the third mate, hey, this this buoy's here, we're approaching that reef. He did not take decisive action. He continued uh, charting their course, uh, doing the work that he was doing, and, and didn't take decisive action. A few minutes after that, the ship ran aground on the reef, and at 12.27, the, pilot was no, or the captain was notified, and, and he radioed the Coast Guard and said, we have an emergency, we've ran aground. And then he made this nonchalant statement. He said, oh, and evidently we're leaking some oil. The captain who radioed this in was Captain Joseph Hazelwood. He was the captain of the Exxon Valdez. That little bit of oil turned out to be 10 million gallons of crude oil that leaked into Prince William Sound. The economic and ecological impact of this disaster was massive, millions and millions of dollars, and the ecosystem is still recovering to this day. And and the thing about this disaster is so much of it goes back to a lack of intentionality. They later discovered that they had a, a collision avoidance system aboard this ship that had not been working for quite some time, and in fact, the management decided not to repair it because it was such an expensive thing to repair. The crew was short-staffed, and they were eager to get on this voyage, and so they, they hurried the protocol. So you have a drunk captain, you have broken equipment, you have a hurried crew, and you have a departure from the standard shipping lanes where they were technically supposed to sail, and you have the third mate who put the ship on autopilot, all because they didn't have an intentionality to follow the safety protocols and use the equipment that they'd been given. And part of what we see, I think, is that anytime we lack intentionality in something, there are ramifications and implications that happen because of a lack of intentionality. When you think about any arena of life, somebody told me this, and I think it's true, nothing drifts toward health. If I am not intentional in an area of my life, it will not be healthy. Whether that's my marriage, whether that's my relationship with my children, whether that's the ministry that God has called me to, whether that's my physical well-being, if I am not intentional, those things do not naturally drift towards health. The things that we want to be healthy, we have to be intentionally invested in. One of the, the places that I think we spend time talking about, but not actually living intentionally, I think is in the area of relationships. Um, I, I can think of a handful of, of messages that I've preached uh, here about community, about friendship, 
And I think it's one of those things we know we should do. We hear it talked about at church. We know we need relationships. And yet it's one of those things that we struggle to be intentional with. So this morning, I want to look at three relational dynamics that I think are fundamentally important, that as we talk about what it is to live an intentional life, I think these are foundational. And so I, I want to walk through 1 Peter chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you can turn with us there. Otherwise, it will be on the screen. As we walk through three foundational relationships that we should be intentional with. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Peter writes this. He says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Jumping over to verse 12 of chapter 5, Peter says, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So as Peter's writing this letter, he's writing to a group of believers who are scattered throughout the Mediterranean world. Peter is writing to a church in crisis. They are experiencing persecution. They are experiencing social ostracization. They are being pushed to the margins of society. And Peter writes this letter to encourage the believers in this place. And what I find fascinating is that at the end of his letter, in chapter 5, he devotes most of this passage to talking about the importance of relationships. For Peter, relationships are not peripheral. For Peter, relationships are central. And there's three relational dynamics that he noticed here. The first is that of the shepherd. He says, I appeal to the elders among you. You are to be shepherds of God's flock. After he addresses the shepherds, he talks about uh, the young people in, in, in the community. And he says they should clothe themselves with humility and they should be submissive. And, and finally, in verse 12, Peter talks about his, his friend Silas. And he says that Silas is a dear brother to him. And in this way, Silas represents a deep and lasting, faithful friendship in Peter's life. And so these three relational dynamics are this, the shepherd, the student, and the friend. I want to flesh these out for a moment. So who who is the shepherd? The shepherd is the one that, for Peter, has an element of maturity. He says, to the elders among you, he says, watch out over God's flock that's under your care. In Peter's mind, these are the people who they have life experience and perspective. They've done this faith journey for a season. And he says, your role changes. You are to watch over those who are coming after you. If we were to use the language of the series we've been going through, the shepherd is one who's made the move from consumer to contributor. The shepherd is the one who no longer goes to church and says, what's in it for me? The shepherd comes to the body of Christ and says, how can I contribute to the well-being of others? There's maturity. The shepherd, too, is one who has an intentional relational presence in the life of those they're investing in. Peter says, watch out over those whom God has given you to be a shepherd over. And there's this sense of having a discerning, relational, intentional awareness in which one is aware and cares about the well-being of those who are entering the faith after you. As Peter continues writing, he says, the shepherd should be the one who invests willingly. Did you notice what he says in verse 2? He says, watch out over them, not because you must, but because you're willing. 
The shepherd is not one who, who invests in the life of another out of compulsion. The, the shepherd invests in the life of another out of a conviction that that's who God has called them to be. And, and I love that Peter uses this language. He says, he says, you should be as a shepherd eager to serve. Think about the last time that you were really eager to do something. What did that feel like? When you were just so excited, you couldn't wait to step into something. Our family has a lab a basset hound mix. So he's got tons of energy and floppy ears and looks a little bit goofy, but he's adorable. And he, he loves to go swimming. And so uh, we used to take him swimming all the time. And then we had kids and the dog gets the back seat. You know how it goes. Uh, but we have one of those orange trainers that, that we would throw in the water. And he, he would retrieve that thing a thousand times if you would throw it that much. I mean, until he collapsed. And what I thought was funny is when he'd come back and wait for you to throw it, as soon as your arm was cocked back, you could see him tense, right? Like you could see him shaking almost with the tension. And if you pretended to throw it, he'd kind of get ready to take off. But there was this like, this eager desire. He could not wait. Like the greatest moment in his world is when that thing leaves your hand, right? He lives for that. And, and there's, there's this, this sense of eagerness that cannot be contained. He cannot wait to jump into that moment. And, and I think the same sense is conveyed when Peter says, listen, you should be eager to serve. In other words, this arises from deep within you. It's something that's core to your DNA. You want to serve. This is the life of the shepherd. They have an eagerness to jump in and invest in the life of another person. The shepherd too, he says, be examples to the body. He says this in verse three. He says, don't lord it over them, but being examples to the flock, the shepherd is the one who has maturity to model to those who are coming after them what this life in Jesus looks like. Again, there's a sense of maturity here in the one who becomes a model for those coming after them. Now, the young people that Peter speaks to, he describes this relationship in the language of a student. He says that they should clothe themselves with humility and that they should be submissive towards those who, who, are, who are shepherding them. And this language of being submissive and humble, this is really the language elsewhere in the New Testament that would be used to describe the relationship of a disciple, of a disciple to their rabbi. They were to be humble and submissive, eager and willing to learn. And so what we see in the characteristics of the shepherd-student relationship is the shepherd is willing to invest and the student is humble and submissive and willing to learn and willing to be taught. Now, here's an observation that I've made. Often this dynamic breaks down along generational lines. I, I, I almost didn't even want to use this word this morning. But you could Google this and you will find countless articles about millennials, Right? Their love of avocado toast, their lack of savings, their lack of social skills, their lack of ability to enter the workforce. I mean, you could find all kinds of negative articles about the millennials. Listen, you who are mature in the faith, if you complain to me about the millennial generation, my question to you will be, how many of them are you shepherding and pouring into? Because if you are not investing in those coming behind you, you are complicit in a culture who would point a cynical finger while you do nothing. We have a call as believers to invest in those coming behind us. This is the DNA of one who is an elder and mature in the faith. Listen, though, young people, I'm not letting us off the hook either. Listen, young people, we are so eager to have a seat at the table. We desire leadership and influence. We cannot wait until our voice is recognized and empowered in the workplace. But listen, young people, your biggest job right now is to de develop an inner sense of depth so that when you have a platform, you have something to offer. 
Young people, right now, our role is to be humble and submissive to those who have gone before us, gleaning the wisdom and perspective that God has given them through their life faith journey, developing an inner sense of depth and awareness so that when we have a seat at the table, we have something to say that matters and has depth. And I think in the meantime, both of us, young, old, elder, shepherd, student, we have to stay at the table willing to learn humbly and submissively and willing to invest graciously in the life of another. This third relational dynamic that Peter talks about is, is his relationship with Silas. And he says, Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, this is a friend in his life. And so where the shepherd pours into another and where the student is receiving from the shepherd, the friend is one who comes alongside you and says, hey, let's do this battle of life together. We are in it together. We'll, we'll journey together. And this is all about having a faithful presence in the life and journey of another person. To say, I'm in this with you and I'm for you. I have your back and I know that you have mine. So in the next few minutes, what I want to do, we, we've talked about the characteristics of these relational dynamics. I want to look at, at two uh, case studies. The first is a case study of the shepherd-student relationship, and the second case study is, is a case study of friendship. And as we look through these stories, I want to flesh out what this looks like. What does it mean to be a shepherd in the life of another, and what does it mean to receive the shepherding of another as a student? And how do we do friendship? What does it look like to actually do an intentional relationship? So Exodus Chapter 18 is where we find this case study of the shepherd-student relationship. And if you're familiar with the story of Exodus, you know that this is the story of the people of Israel on their way, journeying from being in slavery in Egypt, journeying towards the freedom of the promised land. And this journey was, was anything but simple. They wandered for 40 years in the desert, and it was a time of God forming and shaping the people of Israel. In Exodus chapter 18, we get to this place where, where Moses, who in my opinion is, is sort of a reluctant leader, God has chosen him, he's called him, and Moses steps into these situations that are often beyond his ability and often beyond his capability. And Moses is in this season where he, he is serving as the judge, as the administrator for the entire nation of Israel until his father-in-law Jethro shows up and becomes a shepherd in his life. Exodus chapter 18, beginning in verse 13. It says, the next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning until evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you're doing for, for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around from morning until evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will, and whenever they have a dispute, it's, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from among the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them serve as judges for the people at all times, but let them bring every difficult case to you. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. 
Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. So here's Moses trying to take it all on himself, right? He's trying to, to be the judge and the administrator for the entire nation of Israel. And Jethro shows up and he becomes a shepherding presence in the life of Moses. And, and I think as we watch their relationship unfold, I think we learn some valuable things. One, about what it is to invest in the life of another. And two, what it is as a student to receive the shepherding influence of someone who has perspective to bring. One of the first things that struck me about this relationship is, is that Jethro uh, is, is intentionally aware and cares about what's happening in Moses' life. He's intentionally aware and he cares about the inner workings of Moses' life and what he's up to. I thought verse 14 was fascinating. It says, when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people. And there's this moment where Jethro comes and when it says that he saw all that Moses was doing, this isn't just a passive like Jethro looked it over and said, oh yeah, I see what you're doing. No, it says that Jethro saw. There's this sense of a discerning awareness about what's unfolding in Moses' life. Listen, when was the last time that you saw in a discerning way uh, what's happening in the lives of the people that you care about? If you were going to be a shepherd in the life of another person, it's about having an intentional spiritual awareness about what God is doing and saying and forming and shaping in their life. Don't gloss over that. Jethro saw what was taking place in Moses' life, and so he's aware and cares in an intentional way. The second thing is that Moses, or Jethro goes to the next step and he begins to ask the critical questions. Did you notice what he said then in verse 14? He says, what is this you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge? And he begins to ask these critical questions about what's happening in Moses' life and his leadership. Just this week on, on Thursday, I had uh, breakfast with someone who, who knows me well. And this last week has just been, it's been a crazy week. And we sat down and we were having breakfast and um, out of the blue, this person asked me this question. He said, what's God been challenging you with this week? This is a critical question, right? What's God doing in your heart and life? This is a shepherding moment of someone saying, I'm aware and I see where you're at. What about that? And I told him, I said, I need to think for a moment. Well, my week has been so busy that I haven't stopped to just take aware, uh, a sense of awareness about what God's doing and saying and speaking in my life. Listen, we need people with a shepherding presence who, who can see the, the, the inner workings of our life and who can say, what about that? And there's a sense of courage, I think, in, in Jethro's life to ask the critical questions of Moses. And not only does he ask these critical questions, but Jethro continues and he asks Moses, hey, how is this going for you? Why are you doing this? And he moves on from there to begin to speak truth into Moses' life. Notice what he says in verse 18. He says, you and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. He says, the work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. He says, listen now to me and I will give you some advice. May God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God. So he sees what's happening. He asks the critical questions and then he begins to speak truth and challenge into Moses' life. And this takes a sense of courage, doesn't it? I mean, let's not gloss over the fact that this is Moses' father-in-law. All right, show of hands. If your father-in-law came to work and stared over your shoulder and said, we can do this better. How many of you would say, thank you, I, I've been waiting for this, right? I'm just kidding, don't raise your hand. But probably most of us would say, through gritted teeth, thank you for the input. I think I've got it under control, right? I think this is a courageous moment where Jethro is probably like, oh, ah. hey, Moses, I see this thing in your life, what about that? 
And so much of being willing to invest in the life of another is having the courage to offer the wisdom and the perspective that God has given you to bring that to bear in the life of another person. And, and the thing that's so crazy is I think your life experience, you, you've gone through this journey. There's things that you've learned that you don't even know that you've learned until someone younger than you comes and says, hey, how do you do this? What about that? And suddenly you, you, you can start to remember all of these things and moments where God has been forming and shaping you. And so sometimes I, f- I hear people say, well, I don't really have too much to offer. I don't, I don't think I'm wise enough to pour into someone else's life. No way. It, that downplays the work of formation that God has been doing in your life. You have no idea how much you have to offer. And I appreciate Jethro's courage to say, Moses, listen, let me bring some perspective to you. And what Jethro does is he highlights a problem for Moses that Moses doesn't even know he has. Perhaps it's hubris that Moses thinks, I can do this. I I alone can stand as the judge for all the people. And Moses feels the weight of it. He knows it's important. That's why he can't let it go. But Jethro says, Moses, this is going to crush you. You don't even see it yet, but Moses, you cannot stand up under the strain of this calling. You need other people. And Jethro has the courage to speak truth into his life. The final thing I see Jethro doing, though, is also bringing a sense of spiritual direction. This isn't just life coaching, shepherding. And the reason I didn't use the word mentoring is mentoring sometimes can become too much about life coaching. And and that's important, too. But listen, I use shepherding because it has overt spiritual overtones to it. And, and if we're going to pour into the life of another, what's desperately needed is not just, just life advice. What's also desperately needed is a sense of spiritual direction and wisdom, right? And so Jethro says in verse 19, he says, listen, I will give you some advice and may God be with you. He says, you must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. And he says, Moses, it's not about you. You think you're the judge of the people. No, 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 no. You need to bring their disputes before him. It's not about you, Moses. Verse 20, he says, teach them his decrees and instructions. In other words, he says, Moses, the the way that you can get ahead of this thing, don't just judge their disputes, begin to teach them the right way of living and being as God's people in the world, right? And Jethro is bringing this perspective that Moses can't see yet, but he needs someone to bring this truth in his life. And so Jethro has this voice of spiritual direction in Moses' life. Now, what about Moses' response? I don't want to gloss over that because I think in this text of equal importance is the way that that Moses responds to this. Notice what it says in verse 24. It says, Moses listened to his father-in-law. If you didn't believe in miracles, there's proof. I mean, I I love the sense of humility and submissiveness that Moses has, that his father, and, and this is, so the first way Moses responds is he listens he has the humility to listen. The second thing is he resists being defensive. Now, if, if I were Moses, I, I think I would have at least thought it, if not said it, I would have thought, please, Jethro, tell me when was the last time that you led an entire nation through the, Israel, through the desert after being in slavery? Please, please tell me your advice on this, right? You've obviously led a nation, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be speaking into my life. Right? That's, that's the sort of cynical, sort of arrogant side of me that would want to say, yeah, Jethro, you have no idea how hard this is. So before you go spouting off wisdom in my life, you better step back, son. Right? But, but Moses doesn't do that. It says he listened. And, and, and I think if you're going to have someone who's investing in your life as a shepherd, we have to be humble enough to hear what they're saying. And, and this is the third thing that Moses does. He moves from hearing to heeding. 
Did you notice at the end of verse 24, it says, Moses listened and he did everything his father-in-law said. I, I used to, to make the mistake of, of mistaking passiveness for teachability in the lives of people. There were a couple of people whose lives I had, I had tried to pour into and over and over again, we kept talking about the same things. And I said, well, what about this? Have you tried this? Have you, how's, how's your heart? They weren't invested in the process and they, they would not along. Oh yeah, that's right. But they would never take action. And what I realized is they weren't teachable. They were just passive. Moses doesn't have a passiveness here. Moses has a teachability that's humble and willing to not just hear, but to heed and to implement the word that his father is bringing. Listen, like Moses and Jethro, each of us need a shepherd in our life. Someone who's a little bit beyond where we are, who can bring perspective to where we're at. And shepherds, we need people who are willing to invest in the life of another. And, and I think sometimes in church, you know, the, the easy thing to do is to point at the pastor and say, well, the pastor's the shepherd. If all of our pastoral staff worked 40 hours a week and all we did was shepherd people in those 40 hours, we could only impact maybe 360 people. Doesn't cut it. Doesn't do it. On a Sunday, there's anywhere from 16 to 1,900 people who call this church home. We can't shepherd everyone. What the church desperately needs is people who are mature in their faith who say, you know what? This isn't about me. I need to make the shift from consumer to contributor. I need to become a shepherd in the life of another person. This is how the body of Christ has to function. And we are in desperate need of people who can step up and model the way. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you have it all figured out. It means you're authentic and vulnerable and willing to invite someone else into your journey and bring perspective into their life. And on the other end of that, in that student relationship like Moses, we have to be humble and teachable and willing to, to hear and to listen and to heed the word that's brought in our life. But this shepherd-student relationship is one that we have to have intentionally. How do you find someone to shepherd you? Have the courage to ask. Is there someone you respect that you appreciate their perspective and you've watched their spiritual journey and you go, I think this person has something to offer. Make the courageous moment to ask. Hey, would you be a voice of spiritual direction in my life? If you're someone who you, you, you would say you're in that shepherd category, have the courage to offer that to someone. I think sometimes it's our own insecurity that says, oh, I don't know if anybody would listen to me. Who's coming up behind you? Whose life you could impact if you were willing to have a shepherding voice in their life. And no matter what season of life you're in, you need someone to shepherd and you need to shepherd someone, no matter what season. And that relationship will grow and will change over time and the person that shepherds you might change. But I think that no matter what season we're in, we need people who are beyond us to speak into our life, but we need to turn and contribute that into the life of another. Now, here's, here's this third relational dynamic that Peter talked about in chapter five. It's the dynamic of friendship. And, and I know, like, the thing I wrestled with all week is maybe this is so broad, but honestly, as I looked at, at the text in 1 Peter chapter 5 and looked at Peter and Silas, their relationship, where, where Peter could say, he's a dear brother to me. I think in our culture, there is a starvation for true friendship. We're more connected than ever, but so incredibly disconnected. So I want to look at this case study of true friendship, and I want to look at this out of 1 Samuel chapter 23. And this is the story of David and Jonathan. And if you know their story, you know that, that David is sort of a rising star in the nation of Israel. Now, Jonathan's father is Saul, who's the king of Israel. And if you read the story of 1 Samuel, you discover that Saul is, in my opinion, one of the most insecure leaders in the Old Testament. And so he, he's the first king they've ever had, and he's trying to start this king thing outright. 
The problem is that, that David has a couple really successful moments in battle. And so the people of Israel start to sing this song. And the song is this. They say, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. Right? And, and Saul does what most of us who are insecure do. When our power is threatened, we power up. We don't lay it down in humility. He powers up. He avoids his own brokenness. And he begins to have this antagonistic relationship with David. And he begins to hunt down David and wants to take his life. 1 Samuel chapter 23, this is David and Jonathan uh, talking about Jonathan's dad who wants to kill David. Verse 15 of chapter 23, it says, While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You shall be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The thing that struck me about Jonathan is that he is intentionally and courageously involved in David's life. And there's a consistency to this involvement. He's intentionally and courageously involved in David's life. And this is the second note under there. And there is a consistency to this. I mean, let's not lose the fact that Saul, who wants to kill David, that is, that is Jonathan's dad. But Jonathan and David are such good friends that even in this moment of, 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 of just crazy drama and stress in David's life, I love that it says that Jonathan went out to him, that Jonathan pursues David in his moment of struggle. I've seen on, on Facebook a couple of these memes that say something like, um, I don't have time for drama in my life or, or I don't need negative people in my life. When I read those posts, the only thing that I see is someone saying, I don't have patience and grace for the wounding and brokenness of another person. And I think, by and large, our culture focuses that way, that we put our head down and say, I want deep friendship, but I don't have time for the wounding and brokenness of another person to affect my emotional well-being. But listen, if you are going to do friendship, what you're saying is, listen, I will be patient and gracious, but truth-telling in your places of wounding and brokenness, but let the, let's do this journey of life together. It would have been so easy for Jonathan to say, oh, David, uh, my dad's going to kill you. Um, I've got something at nine, so... I'm not going to be there. That, I might have done that. But I love that Jonathan, in the midst of David's need, in the midst of the unfolding drama of David's life, Jonathan goes to him because he knows that David needs him. And in the midst of that, there's, there's a spiritual component to the relationship. It says that Jonathan helped David find strength in whom? What's the text say? He, he found strength in God. We are not meant to do this faith journey alone. We need someone who can come alongside of us and say, is this really hard for you? Yeah, me too. Do you have any idea what you're doing in this life? Me either. Let's do it together. Can we help each other find strength in God? Can we challenge each other in our places of wounding and brokenness? Can we be vulnerable and authentic and open before each other? Can we be gracious and truth-telling? Can we spur one another on towards greater faith? We desperately need this kind of friendship. The other thing, and you can read the text there, it's 1 Samuel 20, 5 uh, through 8. It's this moment where David says, okay, I'm going to go to Saul. But he tells, he tells Jonathan, he says, if I'm in the wrong, he says, would you just bring the judgment that should be upon me now? And if you read that text, you'll find that David opens up his life to confrontation and conflict from Jonathan. And if we're going to do relationships in a healthy way, if you're going to do friendships in a healthy way, we have to be okay with conflict and confrontation and truth-telling. And, and honestly, here's, as I was thinking about these dynamics of friendship, the, the thing that kept coming back to me was, for those of us who are married, 
Does your, and sometimes we use this phrase, like, I married my best friend. If that's true, does your relationship with your spouse as a deep friendship, does it reflect some of these things? Are you courageously involved and willing to be patient with the unfolding dramatic narrative of their life and spiritual journey? Are you consistent and constant in the life and well-being of your spouse? Are you willing to speak truth and to say the hard things into one another's life and push into the hard places? For those of you who aren't married, are you willing to invest courageously in deep friendships? Are you willing to be vulnerable? And I think sometimes we keep looking and waiting for someone else to be vulnerable with us, but at some level, we have to set the trajectory for what we want friendships to look like. At some level, we have to be the people who go there and invite others who are safe into our places of brokenness and say, hey, let's do this thing together. I have three reflection questions that I want to leave you with today. I I challenge you to think about these things and to think about how you can implement some of these things in your life. Think about this. Who are you investing in? Who are you shepherding? No matter what phase of life in, there's someone who's coming up behind you who needs a voice in their life to bring perspective and wisdom and truth to where they're at. Who are you investing in? Secondly is this question of who is speaking into your life? And, And I might add this, who's speaking into your life and how are you listening to the wisdom that they're bringing? And finally is this question, who are you journeying through life with? Who is standing there side by side with you saying, hey, let's push into this together. Let's be courageously involved and invested in one another's life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and I I thank you for, for Peter's wisdom. God, that he's writing to a church in distress, to a church that's in a culture that is antagonistic to them. And and of all the things that Peter could have used to to wrap up his letter, he chooses to focus on the importance of relationship. And so, God, I, I pray today that we would let those reflection questions resonate in our life. God, that we would be mindful of asking this question, who are we willing to invest in? Who are we willing to be a shepherding voice in the life of? God, I I pray too that we would be a people who are humble and submissive to those who have a shepherding influence in our lives. May we be a people who are are humble and teachable. God, I pray that you would give us a divine passion and conviction for friendships. It's so easy to try to do it alone, to not want to be held back by uh, the drama or or the wounding and brokenness of another person. It's, It's just easier and we move through life quicker if we just do it alone. But God, That's not how we were created. So God, I pray that you would give us a divine passion to develop whole and deep friendships with people that we can say, like Peter said of Silas, this is a dear brother, this is a dear sister who's been faithful in my life. And Father, may we always be mindful of the reality that it's your son Jesus who shows us what relationship is as he dies for our sin and as he invites us into relationship with you, as he reconciles us back to you, God. May we recognize that his grace, that your transformative work in our life is the foundation for all relationship. Father, we love you and we thank you for your grace and mercy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.